Hello friends, welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Allison Coton, an interaction designer at EPEM Continuum. I've heard a lot of hopeful talk this spring about ways in which the pandemic has inadvertently changed us for the good, made us craftier, more likely to cook at home, more outdoorsy, more appreciative of our pets. I wonder, though, what we get to keep when business is back in full swing. Totally seamless free deliveries? Crowd-free museums? No traffic? While some sectors have jumped or been pushed into building pandemic-era offerings that feel more accessible and relaxingly less crowded than those from 2019, telemedicine has yet to fully make a virtue of that necessity. The truth is, as Elizabeth Rosenthal, author of American Sickness and editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, discusses with our Jonathan Swerzy, there is yet really no workaround to avoid the necessary physicality of the practice of medicine. Virtual appointments can take the profit-driven busy work out of routine health maintenance, but the complicated specificity of bodies in distress can never truly be communicated without engaging all five senses. There's equity and access considerations here, too, as telemedicine becomes one option out of many for patients, not a grim universal pandemic requirement. Like any good user experience challenge, the question is not how to bring more automation to medicine, but instead how to achieve access to human support and human touch for those who need it when it matters the most. Can healthcare rise to that challenge thoughtfully and with compassion? Let's hear Rosenthal and Swarzy talk it over. Why don't we just get get started then? Um, I am familiar with your book, um, American Sickness, and um, recall you know that you had had a chapter in it about the pros and cons regarding telemedicine. Uh, more recently, you know, in May, um, you wrote an article on telemedicine as a tool, not a replacement for your doctor's touch. Um, and and I want to share a quote with you from that, which was, COVID-19 let virtual medicine out of the bottle. Now it's time to tame it. If we don't, there's a danger that it will stealthily become a mainstay of our medical care. Deploying it too widely or too quickly risks poorer care inequities, and even more outrageous charges in a system already inf infamous for big bills. Um, I'd love to just get your thoughts um, on the juxtaposition between how, how you thought of virtual care and telemedicine in American Sickness and where you were going with the article. Well, when I was writing about it in the book, which was uh, published in 2017, it was quite theoretical. It was on the horizon. You know, there were all these people who were proposing all the things we could do with telemedicine. And I, you know, I attended some tech conferences and uh, I kept getting emails from people with uh, great ideas for apps that were going to solve, you know, our healthcare system. So I started with a little bit of skepticism then. And that doesn't mean that I think telemedicine is a bad thing. I think many of us spend way too much time schlepping into doctor's offices for things that could be done perfectly well over the phone. Um, but what happened during the pandemic was of necessity, suddenly insurers who had been very, very stingy about paying for telemedicine were forced to pay for it as if it were an in-person visit, right? So I actually had written and the editor took it out, let the genie out of the bottle. But, um, yep. uh, and um, it's just been unleashed in ways that are not terribly thoughtful because of course, when, when there's a pandemic and it's dangerous to see uh, your doctor in person or to go into a hospital in person, then sure, it's it's it does a lot of good things, but is it 
50% of a real in-person visit, 70%, 100%, sometimes 120%. But I think it really depends on the kind of visit and how it's used and who is creating the telemedicine system. And that's because it was just unleashed during COVID. We really never thought about that. And now, guess what? We've got to. Yeah, of course. And, and certainly we had some regulatory changes that helped to, to make that possible as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there, there were changes that said, uh, you know, we, we are going to pay from the insurers. We are going to pay for uh, COVID care with no copays. We're going to pay for virtual medicine as if it's an in-person visit. Um, a lot of the boundaries between state licensing evaporated because of COVID as people moved to other states. So you could see uh, if you were seeing a, a mental health therapist and you moved to Maine and he or she was in New York, you could see them that way. Now, we are going to be forced to have to deal with, is this a good idea or not? And when, because the insurers are rolling back some of those regulatory uh, and insurance rules this summer. So guess what? You may find that the therapist you've been seeing happily from Maine no longer can see you if you want your insurer to cover it. So I think we have a lot of sorting out to do. Yeah, and it, it feels like um, when I talk with, with my colleagues and our clients that you know we tend to talk about telemedicine as just one big category, but it feels like there are parts of medicine that, that are really a nice fit for the modality and other kinds of medicine that just aren't. Um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Like, where, where are the good areas? For telemedicine? Well, we haven't, the problem is we haven't actually sorted that out very much yet. I mean, there are some obvious ones, like, right? Like, um, you know, a young woman who needs a refill of an oral contraceptive at, 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 for in much of the country has to go visit a gynecologist, even though there is no other reason to do it, uh, except that it generates revenue for the physician. And it's ridiculous, frankly. Um, some kinds of conditions I think I used in the article, uh, I have chronic sinus infections. If I get one of those, I shouldn't have to go see a doctor to say, yes, you have your usual chronic sinus infection. I'm lucky I've got an old-fashioned doctor who I've known for a long time who will prescribe those antibiotics over the phone because we both know what I've got, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but other things um, don't work so well. For example, and I can give you another personal example, um, I had a pretty serious head injury uh, about 15 months ago. The first six months were virtual PT, right? Mm. Because I didn't want to go into the hospital's rehab department. Um, and it was better than nothing, but it wasn't the same as once I could see the physical therapist in person who said, you know what? You're not using that left leg right. I couldn't see that in two dimensions, but now I see why you're having trouble with your gait. And it was like miraculous to have someone seeing and feeling and, and showing me what to do, which just as good as the screen could be, it, it wasn't the same. So, you know, I think we have to sort all those out. Where do we want to pay for it? And where do we want to say, no, you should go in. And the problem is all of us during pandemic, I think, 
got somewhat enamored got somewhat enamored with telemedicine because it is more convenient, right? You can sit mm. at your home and get a doctor's visit. But what you don't know is what you're not getting by doing it that way. Uh, there was one study I, I cited in the Times piece, which was um, phys- uh, pediatricians who were diagnosing uh, kids by telemedicine were far more likely to prescribe antibiotics for um, ear infections, mm. uh, you know, because if you can't actually look in the kid's ear, it's the safer thing to do, but it's bad medicine because in the end it will just develop resistance. So, you know, I'm a fan of telemedicine where it's when it's used appropriately, but I really worry that in um, a system that, um, as my book concluded, is, is very profit-driven, that it will be used where it's profitable rather than where it's medically useful. And I'm not saying those those two spheres will overlap, but not all the time, right? <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I think, um, you know, that makes a lot of sense and it resonates with us. But I guess, you know, the question that I have is it feels like a lot of the assumption in there is that technology and the way that we deliver telemedicine today is the way telemedicine would be. And what I wonder is, you know, I think, first of all, I want to, want to ask, um, you know, I, I hope that your, your recovery has come along yes. quite well from your, 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 your Yes, it's gotten, it's, it really got better much quicker. Even okay. with head injuries, the first six months is supposed to be the time of more rapid recovery, you know, but yep. I wasn't getting proper rehab then. Hmm. But is the, is the challenge the, is it, is it that it's being delivered through telemedicine or virtual care, or is it that the technologies that would you know actually work well in that situation weren't there for you? So I'll give you an example. Um, we've done some work looking at you know using regular cameras like in your laptop um, to create to um, come up with a system for pose detection. Yep. You know where you could get feedback on how is Elizabeth doing the exercises, and and that could be shared, you know, real time potentially with the PT. If if that kind of thing was there, would that change the delivery mechanism? Do you think? Um, if and when it is really there, I can tell you it's not there right now because yep. I had one of those things. I had cameras set up and what was formerly our you know where we ate dinner. And um, and a, and a, like a um, a Wii system set up, hmm. so it could check my movements, but it wasn't the same in the end. It wasn't good enough to see that, for example, I was using my right leg much more than my left leg. Hmm. It, it could yep. pick some things, but not enough. And in fairness, it was a um, this was part of a trial or a, a test case. So it could be that we will get there. The problem is we are not there yet in many areas. Likewise, when I talked about the ear infection, you know, there have been um, ideas about creating um, a little widget you could put on your iPhone to show the doctor what your kid's eardrum looked like, which would Hmm. be helpful. But the fact is, it's kind of hard to visualize a kid's eardrum unless you've done it a whole lot of times. So I think telemedicine will be able to do more and more. Uh, My worry is always that it will be sold 
um, as useful because it, it it's you know there's a um, there's a it's commercial before it's useful and that could give the whole field a bad name frankly I mean I, I guess I I will think back to the um, the Theranos scandal right. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be possible at some point to do a whole lot of blood testing on a drop of blood. But Theranos didn't know how to do it, right? It mm-hmm. blew up in their face. So that's kind of my worry, that we will be sold things that are not ready for prime time, that are really kind of beta tested, but that haven't been even beta tested. And so it will give what could be um useful interventions, uh, you know, it will make them feel not useful and they won't be useful and people will be charged for them. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the pandemic gives that example, right? If, if a large portion of us healthcare delivery is still fee for service and the demand for elective procedures evaporates, right? Not only evaporates, but the need for medical care, like, you know, there's a whole wholesale shift, Right yep. in, in in early 2020, um, maybe you know rolling out telemedicine at that time. I think you talked about it as being you know it was unleashed and not thoughtful. Um, maybe that was you know a survival kind of a thing. I, I don't know. Yeah, we needed it then, right? We needed right. it because telemedicine. It's definitely better than no telemedicine, which is where we were before, right? The the uh, the insurers were terribly reluctant to pay for it. Far Mm. more so than they should have been so that, as I said, you had to go into the doctor for stuff that, you know, could have been done virtually so simply. Um, And so I think, you know, like cardiac monitoring, I I heard a funny story where a cardiologist at a hospital in, I I will not name, in Texas, Mm. that he, he said to his CEO, you know, gosh, the home monitoring has gotten so great that I don't have to put patients in the hospital with heart failure. And mm. the CEO was like, don't, don't say that, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, we need those beds occupied. So because of the way we've paid for medicine in the past, we've underutilized the promise of telemedicine. And I, I guess my thinking is I don't want the pendulum to swing too far in the other direction either. It's open the door. I, I want it. I want the pandemic to have opened the door, not let this genie out of a bottle that we can't control. Yeah, I I, I hear you. I th- I think that makes just a just a, a ton of sense about what we're doing. Um, you know, my own you know observations and experience with with doctors who are getting set up with telemedicine in the pandemic was um, that not just that the systems were put in place, but we, but we look at it in isolation. We miss the rest of the, of the human component. That is watching a doctor struggle with a new telemedicine you know, <laughs> piece of software while trying to integrate with their EMR um, and, and every other system and tool that they have. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've, I've seen a lot of doctors' foreheads in the last year and not a lot of their faces. So, so I, I understand that. I feel very, very lucky. My neurologist was was fabulous at it. But again, you know, um, you can't test someone's reflexes uh, on a screen. And that was a key to figuring out my diagnosis. 
right? Mm -hmm. And you really can't test your own reflexes very well either, even though I'm a doctor, because you, you, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a reflex hammer at home. But so there's certain parts of an exam that you just can't do virtually. And there are certain human interactions that are also important for care. I mean, the first, one of the earliest iterations of telemedicine that, that was put into fairly widespread use, um, which, which showed me, kind of alerted me to some of my, or started some of my misgivings was, you know, we were getting uh, all these promotional things about home hospice via telemedicine, right? And we, we actually did a, a series at Kaiser Health News about it. And, and the problem is, you know, when people are dying at home, they actually want to see a person. They don't want an iPad, you know? Right. And right. so that element of, you know, the home hospice that was delivered was almost like, you know, an Ikea package, you know, here's your iPad, uh, here's the catheter, hope your daughter can figure out how to put it in, here are some virtual instructions. But that's not what hospice is about, right? So No, it's not. It's, it's, it's not, not, not at all. So, and that's a great example. Um, we, we talk a lot at my company about bringing humans, you know, back into healthcare, bringing in that human element. I had a chance, you know, my favorite part of my job is, is getting to talk with, with leaders like, like you and, and also previously um, Dr. Eric Topol, um, who in, you know, in 2019, he said, I think the idea that technology could enhance humanity in medicine is alien in this country. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what do you think about that sentiment? And have we learned anything different to, through the pandemic? Well, I think that's the key. And I, I love Dr. Topol and his, his work is that technology should be used to enhance medicine, not to replace it. And um, I think that's where he's always at, you know, the, the home monitoring, the bedside echocardiogram. There are so many things that it can do well. Um, it cannot, in the end, be as kind of holistic or integrative as a doctor who knows you, who's seen you before, um, who uh, can take a much more holistic view of you and what you're complaining about, right? And and can physically look at certain things that some of which you some of which you can see on a screen and are totally appropriate for a virtual visit and mm-hmm. some of which are are not and um boy i don't know how we're going to sort that out and just again you know now now that i'm doing like in person physical therapy i'm getting endless uh endless texts from my insurers saying don't you want to use this virtual PT service, which A, is not connected to my neurologist, not connected to my rehab doctor, not connected to anyone who's ever known me. And I took a look at it and it's like, no, thank you. I can look at like hip strengthening exercises on YouTube. I don't need, hmm. you know, that kind of virtual medicine. So I think that that kind of massive mess or you know some of the new mental health apps that have turned out i'm very ambivalent about them because you know they're driven by they're very reductionist um you can get a lot of self-help on 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 the web you know anyway 
and um, I do. I still maybe I'm old fashioned, but I still think it's important to have. In, in many cases, a doctor who knows you and sees you and, um, hmm. you know, sees, knows what you looked like a year ago and, hmm. um, and can follow you through um, a course of an illness. Now, hmm. you know, I do think those, that doctor should be allowed to, to do telemedicine. I think I, I'm, I guess I favor a blended approach where physicians and um, hospitals have a choice, you know, is this a visit that's appropriate for telemedicine? Is there a reason why we really need to see this person in person now? So, you know, that's the ideal world, but very little in medicine is the ideal world these days. So, um, that, that is true for, for sure. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, I think there's a presupposition that people have access to, to a physician um, or or to a to a provider, if not a if not a physician, um, what about the potential for telemedicine to help us to serve people who live in healthcare deserts? I forget what the what the latest numbers were, you know, sort of related to that. But it, but the but the numbers are, you have always have been really quite large, right? Typically, yeah. rural or underserved communities, um, communities of color certainly suffer disproportionately. Um, can telemedicine be helpful in addressing equity? Well, again, you know, it depends on the motivation of the the person who is providing or selling it, right? Mm. Um, if it, it can certainly um, help people who live in healthcare deserts or who live far from a hospital or clinic, but it needs to have backup because what if at the end of that telemedicine visit? Or even at the beginning, the, the, the person at the other end of the line says, you need to go to a hospital pronto, or you need an appointment with a cardiologist in two days. It's very unsatisfactory if the follow-up is, go find yourself a cardiologist. You know, there should that it should be integrated into a system that can do physical medicine where it's needed. And I guess one of my fears is that, like, you know, those of us who have good insurance and know how to work the system, we will have, we will be able to see physicians, but everyone else, but, but people who are in health deserts or in underserved communities, instead of setting up a system of healthcare for them, genuine healthcare, they'll be reduced to, you know, my, I live in fear of phone trees, you know, yeah. call, call doctor line. Are you, you know, you know, press one if your pain is in your chest, two if it's in your abdomen, um, you know, do you have a fever? And yikes, you know, that's not a substitute for healthcare. So I, I worry on both sides, you know, it can be an, a tremendous tool for screening. Um, it can also be uh, kind of pretend healthcare for people who are, who we should plug into a real system. Um, and that's my feeling that telemedicine has to be integrated into a system that has the capacity to do the, the, the touch and the see a doctor and, you know, uh, we need to examine you, um, not just this kind of call center somewhere, uh, you know, in another state with a bunch of people reading through, um, 
you know, a phone, an algorithm tree, which, you know, we have all seen happen mm. in much of healthcare, right? Just yep. mostly now for scheduling appointments and things like that. But you can see how that could be easily adapted to become a, um, a really bad way of giving care. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it strikes me that that part of telemedicine, it, you know, it really is is dependent on having access to good data. And, you know, there are some new, you know, some new mandates around interoperability. And uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about, you know, the impact that the, the, those mandates will have on, on, you know, broadly innovation in healthcare, but then specifically in telemedicine. Well, um, you know, I, I could go on a real rant about interoperability because there are lots of mandates, but that requiring, but very little of it in real life. Um mm. In the sense of, you know, I can go to two different providers that use Epic and they can't often talk to each other. So, and forget it if one uses Epic and the other uses Cerna, I have to cut and paste notes from one or have them burn a disc and walk the scan over to the other. So, you know, genuine interoperability would be great, but man, we are so far from it. I was speaking to, uh, someone who was uh, from Korea, South Korea yesterday. And uh, he mentioned that everyone in South Korea has a little card that carries all their medical data on it. You know, that would be really useful if you could kind of somehow upload that into your computer for a telemedicine visit. But we are, you know, despite all the mandates and despite how much we spent on digitizing health records that were supposed to be by now interoperable. They're really not, uh, boy, there are huge gaps in that promise. So. Well, why is that, do you think? Uh, well, I think if I'm hospital A, I really don't want to lose patients to hospital B. So if I have their data captive, um, I keep my patient. I think a lot of it is commercial, frankly, you know, and people will talk about HIPAA and I'm like, you know, you can put the scan of my knee up on Twitter and I don't care. I just, why can't you send it to this other provider? So I think a lot of it is about um, protectionism, frankly. Mm. Um, And also, you know, it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't, Part of the design of of uh, most of our medical rec- our EHR systems, um, which you know physicians complain about endlessly, to be interoperable, they were designed largely as um, data capture and billing tools. Right. Yeah. So, so you know it wasn't a priority, and um, so can you blame the the big uh, medical record companies? I I don't know. You know we didn't think ahead enough and and how we wanted them designed i think hmm. no that's that's, that's you know, but really it's a nice example where we say oh technology should be really great for this but it can be if you do it right and it cannot be if you don't do it right so it's all about the the, the use you know hmm. are are there a couple of things that you would say would be indicators that you're doing it right. Like what are some of those things that you're thinking about? Well, I think there's a lot of capacity now for home monitoring that we used to do in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think there's, um, 
you know, it's all about patient outcomes. It's things like I looked when I wrote that article to see if we had any good uh, side-by-side comparisons of people who say had lower abdominal pain and had a telemedicine evaluation rather than going to an ER. How Hmm. many appendectomies were missed, you know? Yeah. Um, But the only thing I could find, and that's because you know, the, the medical world tried to ignore telemedicine for so long that we don't have good studies as we did for that one little study I was talking about, hmm. um, pediatricians and upper respiratory infections. We should know that for every, you know, certainly for appendectomies, certainly for common medical evaluations. You know, when do you need to go in and when can you do it over the phone? I think I mentioned in the story uh, um uh, a, a fun little incident that my family had where um, my son, you know, since I'm the doctor in the family, I get pictures of everyone's rashes and whatever. He sent me a picture of his rash and I was like, I don't know, call, you know, I can't tell you what it is. Call, call your doctor, you know? So the big hospital system where he goes said, Oh, that's good for telemedicine. He gets a telemedicine appointment. The telemedicine doctor looks at it and goes, I can't tell $300 later, you have to come in to be seen by the dermatologist. So another $500. So that's yep, a bad yep. use of telemedicine. You know? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good cautionary tale. Um, I want to be mindful um, of our time. I know we're supposed to, to, to end. Um, I, I had one last question, but I'm also want to be, be respectful. That's okay. Okay. Um, this is, something a little, it's a little bit different. It gets to sort of the, the core of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my favorite professor from graduate school was Fiona Scott Morton, who to this day is probably the smartest person I've ever met. Uh-huh. Do, you, do you know her by any chance? I don't know her personally. I know who she is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she, she co-founded a group called 1% Steps for Healthcare Reform. Mm-hmm. And, and the premise is that there are several discrete problems within the healthcare system. And the best way to tackle these is with you know, discrete solutions rather than wholesale reinvention. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are just about this approach to reform through incremental change. Is it viable? Um, are there discrete problems that you could that you would identify that are worth looking at? Well, <laughs> That's a hard one because the system is so um, interdependent at this point. I think, uh, you know, one big one, which which the pandemic tested out, is when do we need to hospitalize patients and when can we treat them as an outpatient, right? Mm-hmm. That is, the balance is way off in our system. And as I go around to speak at medical centers, you know, I'm always, not always, but I'm often like, you know, oh, don't you want a tour of our new building? And I'll go into this brand new spanking building with all private rooms and, you know, Hmm. nice, nice art on the walls. And I'm like, this is really impressive. I hope you have a plan to turn this into condos because this is not the future of medicine, you know, (laughs) you know, with remote monitoring um, and, and all we can do at home now, Uh, inpatient care, you know, probably is way overused because hospitals like hotels need to fill beds to make their, make their revenue. So they, I, they do. They do modern hospitals anyway, right? There used to yeah. be a point in time in history where hospitals were infrastructure 
right? Yeah. You, you, you were never 95% utilization. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and now it's all, now it is same calculation as hotels. So mm -hmm. I do think there are things we can change bit by bit. And I do think, you know, we've waited far too long for some magic solution to rain down on us that will make everything better. So I, I you know, as I said in, in the book, there are things we should do tomorrow. And then yep. there is the long haul, which, you know, maybe it will come from Washington, though I'm not holding my breath. And yep. uh, I, I think companies just like some of them in the energy sector who saw, uh, uh, you know, some of the oil producers who saw um, solar and wind coming and started getting involved in that early. I think the medical systems that are early adapters will really thrive in the long term, but it's hard to be an early adapter because it involves risk taking. It involves breaking the model of healthcare that we now kind of hold sacred, but um, I think it will pay off. I wouldn't be building a fancy new hospital right now. I would be investing in how do we do this at home better? That's that's wonderful. I, I want to thank you for sharing that, that thought. This has been a real privilege for, for me. I could talk to you endlessly and, and just am very grateful for your time. Well, thank you so much. And, um, you know, I'll be really eager to see what virtual medicine looks like in uh, in a year or two years or five years, how much we'll roll back and how much we'll keep. And I hope we keep the good things and, you know, throw away the bad. That's yeah. usually the best way to move forward. <laughs> absolutely. It's not all good. It's not all bad, but hopefully we'll find a good course through it together. Yep, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thank you. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative unless they exist. Elizabeth Rosenthal, it was a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you. Jonathan Swayze was our interviewer. Our producer, Ken Gordon, always has time for a phone call. Kip Palalas is our sound engineer, and I'm your host, Allison Coton. Until the next one, thank you. Thank you.